Hi, I'm Dr. Hyung Sub Shim, Clinical Assistant Professor of Neurology at the University of Iowa, uh, and I'll be talking about tips for visual spatial dysfunction. Uh, I have no disclosures. Okay, so what is visual spatial dysfunction? Uh, the name kind of tells you what it is. So we're talking about uh, defective processing of both visual and spatial information by the brain. And as we go through the talk, we'll be talking a little bit more about what it isn't as well. So hopefully that'll be clear. So to go through how visual information is processed, let's take an example here. So let's say you're looking at an apple. Okay, so that information makes it to your eye and follows from your eye through your optic nerve into your brain and eventually to the thalamus. Okay, at that point the information tracks back through the optic radiations to the occipital lobe to an area here, the primary visual cortex. At this point, no processing about this information has been done. It's organized, but uh, it really hasn't been uh, processed in any way to give understanding of what you're looking at. So for that to happen, the brain takes uh, information through a variety of areas surrounding uh, the primary visual cortex called visual association cortex, shown here in lighter yellow. The information takes two paths. So some of the information from uh, the occipital lobe takes a lower path in the brain, or ventral path. This goes toward the temporal lobe and carries information about uh, what you're looking at and what you might call it. So in this case, that you're looking at an apple. Whereas some of the information goes higher in the brain, or more uh, dorsal, and carries information that tells you about how you would interact with that object or where it is. In this case, to the left, for instance. So when we look at the parts of the brain that are involved, the occipital lobe is where the primary visual cortex is, and this area directly in front of it with the visual association cortex is in those parts of the occipital lobe and its borders with the parietal and temporal lobes. So it's problems with these areas of the brain that lead to visual-spatial dysfunction. So what kinds of problems are we talking about? So one of the classic examples is a stroke. Um, and specifically a type of stroke called a posterior border zone stroke. So if you end up not getting enough blood flow to the brain in general, the most uh, vulnerable parts of the brain, or the border zones, are usually what's affected. Especially if the posterior border zone between the anterior and posterior circulation uh, is damaged in the stroke, you can get this pattern of deficits. But any sort of disease that affects the brain in that area can also cause these problems. So masses such as tumors may also cause these issues. And what we'll focus a lot on today is neurodegenerative disease. There are some diseases that classically cause some problems in this area, such as Lewy bodies, um, which we are the uh, process behind Parkinson's disease, uh, but it can also be seen in a lot of other conditions. 
So let's go through a case. A 72-year-old woman presents to the Behavioral Neurology Clinic. Uh, as with many of the patients in our clinic, she describes her problems as problems with memory. But when we ask her what she means by that, she specifically mentions that she's been having difficulty with her finances. When she tries to fill out a check or a bill, she has difficulty figuring out exactly where she needs to write the numbers or to sign her name. Uh, and she finds this pretty disturbing because she's been very independent up to this point. At first she thinks maybe it's a problem with her eyes. So she sees her primary care doctor and gets a referral to ophthalmology. Uh, at this point she feels that her vision is blurry and she can't quite make sense of things so uh, she gets her vision checked and the vision it turns out is actually generally okay according to the ophthalmologist but they think maybe she'll do better with a slightly stronger prescription. Um, she tries this but it really doesn't help her vision. Okay. Over the next couple of years she continues to have worse and worse problems with a variety of things. Um, and by the time that she came to our clinic, she described having problems pouring coffee. When she tried to pour herself a cup of coffee, sometimes it would go into the cup and sometimes she would miss by several inches and end up pouring the coffee all over the table. One of the most disturbing things for her is that she was an avid reader and found it more and more difficult to read. She did a lot of reading on the internet and thought that perhaps getting a larger computer monitor might help the situation. But if anything, she felt that reading on the larger screen was harder, not easier. One of the later changes that she had was that when she tried to look at the clock to see what time it was, she couldn't figure out what it said. Um, she liked to take the bus downtown and had so much difficulty figuring out what the clock said that she had developed the habit of just going to the bus stop and sitting there for up to an hour waiting for her bus to come. When I saw her in the clinic, I drew a circle for her and asked her to fill out uh, the circle as if she were putting the numbers on the face of a clock. And this is what she drew. So you can see here she had a lot of difficulty with this. Uh, you'll also notice that most of the numbers are on the right half of the clock. In this test called the large A small A test, I gave her a sheet of paper with letters on it as shown on the screen. The directions that she uh, were given was to circle all the A's she saw on the screen. And this is her test sheet. Here you can notice a couple things. Uh, for one, you see that she missed a couple A's, small A's, and both of the small A's that she missed are on the left side of the screen. Also, you see that while she may have noticed a couple of the large A's, in general she missed them, and the ones that she did notice, she seemed to have trouble figuring out how to make the circle go around them. Okay, this is an example of a, a phenomenon that we call simultanagnosia, and it's related to how the brain figures out what you're looking at. So when we look at something small, 
the size of the small a on the screen, your brain can take that entire image in all at once and figure out what it's looking at. But for larger images, we need to glue together multiple parts of that image to make a whole. When we look at a large letter A, we are able to clearly see what it is. But if you have problems with visual spatial processing, you may not be able to put the pieces together. People may describe the parts of the big A as a triangle, or as a ladder, or a T, or random lines, and not be able to tell that what they're looking at is actually a letter. We got an MRI of the patient's brain, shown here. In these two cuts, you can see that the back part of the brain, here the parietal lobe, is definitely atrophied compared to the front, which is up on the top of the screen. The parietal atrophy shown in these cuts is in areas that would affect visual spatial processing. The diagnosis we gave this patient is progressive visual spatial dysfunction. This is a gradually progressive disorder, starting with visual processing relatively in isolation, meaning without other problems with cognition, and in which we don't see some other destructive lesion or some other medical reason to explain these problems. It's also called posterior cortical atrophy syndrome, and is often called visual variant Alzheimer's disease as well. The reason for this last name is that most of the cases are caused by Alzheimer's disease pathology. And by that, we mean that if we looked under a microscope at a brain autopsy, we would find amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. As a review, okay, amyloid plaques are extracellular aggregates of a protein called amyloid beta. While some of this is normal in aging, Large amounts of this substance accumulate in people who have Alzheimer's disease. The way these plaques form is that a protein, amyloid precursor protein, uh, which is seen in the membrane of many cells throughout the body, is cleaved. There are different secretases that cleave the amyloid precursor protein in different areas. And specifically, long uh, versions of this cleaved amyloid beta can clump together to form uh, oligomers and eventually insoluble plaques. And it's these plaques that uh, accumulate that uh, is often seen in later Alzheimer's disease. The other pathology that is seen in Alzheimer's disease, neurofibrillary tangles, probably starts at an earlier stage of the disease process. Here we see a protein that is supposed to be in the microtubules of healthy neurons take on a form that becomes unstable. And when this happens, they start to fall apart and form tangled clumps, which we, which we call tangles. In this uh, pathologic slide, we see both amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles in a high number, which is highly suggestive of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. While 
Progressive visual-spatial dysfunction in and of itself is rare. Having some problems with visual-spatial dysfunction in dementia is not that rare. In fact, in many patients in the later stages of the more typical dementia of the Alzheimer type, which we're all familiar with, uh, visual-spatial dysfunction uh, does occur relatively frequently. In other dementias, such as dementia with Lewy bodies, visual-spatial dysfunction can be a major and even a primary component of the disease. In vascular dementia, if there's enough damage to the areas underlying the visual uh, association cortex, or if that cortex itself is damaged, you can also end up with this condition. There aren't a lot of medical treatments when it comes to visual-spatial dysfunction. Because it's felt to be, in general, a form of Alzheimer's disease, we will use medications uh, for that condition in many cases if we think that it might be helpful. Cholinesterase inhibitors such as Exelon, Razodyne, and Aricept are all FDA-approved medications for dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Uh, and good evidence has been shown, and there are some FDA approvals for its use in dementia with Lewy bodies. For that reason, this is usually one of the first medications that we use. However, it hasn't been studied directly in people who have visual-spatial dysfunction as their chief complaint. And even in the conditions where it is FDA approved, uh, the uh, benefit tends to be quite modest. The only other medication that is approved for dementia of the Alzheimer type is Nemenda, or Nemenda XR, which is approved for moderate to severe dementia. And again, has not been studied in people where they only have visual spatial problems, but does appear to have modest benefit in most patients with Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So that's a pretty paltry list. So where do we go from there? Most of what we do in our clinic with patients with visual-spatial dysfunction is to focus on maximizing function, and mainly with simple non-medical interventions. For instance, if they complain that they have difficulty finding objects, we might give them some hints on how to make it a little simpler to find them. For instance, color coding simple objects such as keys may be helpful. If each key on a keychain has a different colored fob, it might make it easier to figure out which one opens the front door, for instance. Keeping an area where you keep important things like keys uncluttered is also helpful so that it makes it easier to find things that are left there. We also tell people to put those things in exactly the same place every time. For instance, if you have a table where you always put your keys, Having one corner of the table or a bowl on that table where the keys go, every time you come home, you're more likely to be able to find them later. Safety and mobility is also a concern that comes up in the clinic. Some of our patients have difficulty figuring out exactly where the opening to a door is. We ask them to learn to feel their way through a doorway so that even if they're off a little bit, they can correct their course before they run right into the edge of the frame. We ask them to avoid area rugs, raised thresholds, and clutter on the floor as well to avoid tripping. Like our patient that I presented, 
reading can be a major concern for the patient. And it's important to remember that larger text may be harder to read because of the simultanagnosia. In fact, sometimes smaller text is the way to go. If you have similarly sized objects that are used often, uh, we suggest that people may want to try using small labels, as again, the larger ones may cause problems with simultanagnosia. We also tell people to find other ways to continue to do the activities that they enjoy. So for instance, with reading, they can consider getting audiobooks or podcasts so that they can keep up on the news and uh, the books that they would like to. We also uh, tell our patients to consider having someone tech savvy set up a smartphone to use voice commands if figuring out the display to their phone is getting too hard. This doesn't work for everybody, but for some people who do enjoy using high-tech devices, it can be very helpful. Um, most cell phone stores can also help do this. One important thing that we stress in the clinic when people come in with this condition is to make sure they know when to get help. There are certain tasks that may require assistance from another person. For instance, if they can't figure out how to fill out a check correctly, they may run into major financial problems if they try to do it themselves. Having someone there to tell them and point out or even move the pen to where it needs to go or to create a cutout template to lay on top of the check to help them fill it out may be helpful. Managing medications, which may be difficult for them to find uh, or identify with visual-spatial dysfunction, can be incredibly important as well. Our patients who continue to cook oftentimes have trouble finding their ingredients, chopping food, or checking to see if the oven is on. Instead of telling our patients that they absolutely cannot cook, oftentimes it is more useful to tell them that somebody else needs to be responsible for watching the oven or for chopping food, uh, even if they continue to be the one in charge of the kitchen. While this wasn't a problem in the case that I presented, many patients with visual-spatial dysfunction may start to misinterpret what they're looking at even to the point of having visual hallucinations. This should not be concerning in and of itself as it is likely an extension of the visual-spatial dysfunction and not a new process. However, it can be a sign of progression of disease, so it's important to make sure that your patients know to let, uh, let you know when this is going on. Caregivers or family members should be reminded to be non-confrontational about addressing these as confronting the patient, especially uh, in a very direct manner, can be very disturbing for everybody. Getting lost is another major concern of people with visual-spatial dysfunction. We often suggest that they have a medical alert tag so that they can help uh, explain to someone who might be helping them what is going on and uh, may be easier uh, able to share what their address is if they need to do so. Many cell phone uh, apps allow your phone to be tracked from another phone on the same plan. 
allowing a family member to track your cell phone if you're a patient with this condition might be an easy way to get help if you do manage to get lost. Ideally, of course, you wouldn't be going someplace alone where you could get lost. We get asked a lot of times about driving, and the short answer is no. Anyone that has any sort of major visual-spatial dysfunction should not be driving. Uh, convincing a patient of that, though, can be very difficult. Uh, a lot of times, focusing on the potential of getting into an accident with another party is enough to help people understand that this isn't a good idea. But if they continue to disagree, oftentimes getting an occupational therapy driving evaluation is the way to go. This is often more in-depth and more helpful than just getting the Department of Transportation involved. As you can imagine, with a condition that's relatively rare, there are very few resources that cover this overlap between dementia and vision. For that reason, I often uh, direct my patients and their families to groups that manage this, the condition separately. For instance, for dementia, we will often direct our patients to the Alzheimer's Association, which has a 24-hour helpline that's staffed by somebody with at least a master's level of education. Uh, the person on the other end of the line may not have special um, experience with people who have visual-spatial dysfunction, but might be able to help in general when it comes to support groups, educational resources, and uh, other issues that may happen when people have cognitive changes such as these. A consultation with a behavioral neurologist can also be helpful, and uh, behavioral neurologists tend to be more familiar with conditions such as visual-spatial dysfunction. Especially if there are mood issues, or if the patient is quite distraught by their deficits, psychiatric consultation can also be extremely valuable. In those cases, it's often important to make sure the patient knows that it's not because that we think that they're crazy, but instead to make sure that they have enough support to deal with the extra problems that arise due to these deficits and the stress that accompanies having them. When it comes to low vision resources, every community has uh, departments for the blind, or foundations for people with low vision. Again, we're dealing with organizations that generally don't deal with specifically visual-spatial dysfunction, but they may have resources that would be available to anybody who has low vision, and many of these would still be applicable to these patients. Neuro-ophthalmology consultation, if available, can also be valuable to help the patient understand what they can or can't see, what they may not uh, be interpreting correctly and to make sure that you're not missing any other processes. Okay, I do want to give another case uh, to make sure that we go through the spectrum of how visual-spatial dysfunction uh, may present and this is a very different case that brings up a lot of important points about visual-spatial dysfunction in general. This is the case of a 72-year-old man with history of hyperlipidemia and seizures. 
Recently, his primary care provider switched his epilepsy medication from oxcarbazepine to valproic acid, and the patient did not do well and started to have more seizures. He started to complain of seeing floating letters on the floor. At one point, when he came to sit down for dinner, he asked his wife if they were going to invite the other people in their home to the table, but it turns out that those other people were only on the television set. He began to run into the side of the doorframe when he tried to walk through. When he came into our clinic, I gave him the small a or large a small a test, and you can see that he only saw a few of the letters on the very far right of the of the page, and in fact misinterpreted a Z as an A. He seemed to have trouble figuring out where the boundaries of the letters were, and circled some of the same letters over and over again, not seeing that he'd already circled them. When I showed him this figure. He told me that it was a mule and was unable to identify that there were any office supplies in the picture. When we got an MRI of his brain, the flare sequence, of which this is a cut, showed major changes in the cortex of the temporal and occipital lobes in areas that involve vision, primarily on the right side which is the left of this uh, image. He was admitted to our hospital and his medications for seizures were adjusted. Eventually they came under better control which was demonstrated on EEG. When we examined him in follow-up a month later, you can see that his uh, small a large a was still not normal. He tended to miss the large A's and still didn't get all the way to the left of, of the paper. But as you can see, he did a fair deal better than he did on his original attempt the month earlier. When shown the same figure again, this time he was able to see most of the objects, although as you can see, still not all of them. This case brings up some important things to be aware of when diagnosing uh, visuospatial dysfunction. The differential can be broad. Some of the diagnoses can be terrible. In fact, prion disease or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is one thing that can cause this pattern, which comes on relatively rapidly and has no cure. Some of these diagnoses, like epilepsy, are treatable. Um, and in much more uh, important of a way than the treatments that we give for dementias. And uh, this case, I believe, is a good example of that. Another issue with uh, progressive visual spatial dysfunction is that it keeps poor company. By that I mean that people who develop visual spatial dysfunction from uh, neurodegeneration tend also to have other problems with the brain. The nearby parietal lobes are very important for praxis or how to use objects. Some of this can overlap immediately with the visual spatial dysfunction, such as using a smartphone or a remote control. But praxis problems can develop to the point where people's arms hang out in space and seem to move on their own, and can cause problems with not even being able to use basic tools, 
such as combs or toothbrushes. The parietal lobe also includes a lot of association cortex that's connected with the frontal lobes. And this system, along with the deep parts of the brain, help us pay attention and concentrate. If enough of the parietal lobe on both sides is involved, severe attention and concentration problems may also develop. This area of connectivity is also responsible for many problems with behavior and mood that may arise in the setting of progressive visual spatial dysfunction. You can imagine that this may be amplified by the stress of having the dysfunction in the first place, and oftentimes it's impossible to know which is really the cause. Uh, usually, I would say there's probably some of both. As I've mentioned a couple times before, one of the causes of visual spatial dysfunction is dementia with Lewy bodies, and in that condition, and in other related conditions, changes in movements that resemble Parkinson's disease, deemed Parkinsonism, are also seen. This includes problems with balance, tremor, um, which is seen at rest, stooped posture, loss of spontaneous movements, and slowing in general of the movements. With all these other things that may be involved when visuospatial dysfunction is detected either on history or exam, it's often a good idea to get a second opinion. Also, getting a good eye exam is a good place to start. You can imagine if you have enough problems with your eyes, you can run into a lot of the same problems. So making sure that that's not the cause is, is definitely something you'll want to do. If you have concerns that there may be specific problems with the brain processing the visual and spatial information, neuropsychology testing, can often help parse this out. It helps if you let the neuropsychologists know that this is something that you're looking for. Okay. The biggest benefit to recognizing progressive visual spatial dysfunction is this. Even if you offer very little in terms of treatment, patients are often extremely relieved that you're taking them seriously. Many of them feel that everyone will think they're crazy, especially if they're having hallucinations. Oftentimes, they're also extremely relieved to know what they have has a name and is something that is, at least at some level, understood by their care providers. For this reason, just being able to give them this diagnosis is often extremely rewarding. So I, I hope uh, this talk has given you some insight into this condition, which in its pure form, again, is relatively rare. But the problems that are present in this condition are seen in many other patients with dementia. Thank you.